Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. So we have been, uh, last few weeks, talking about a series of questions that we called Dear God, because these are like questions, if you could ask God something, that there were no reservations. There was no sense, and, and, and God doesn't really expect us to have reservations with questions. He's okay with questions. And so if we were to ask him some of the deepest questions that we all struggle with, what would those be? And so the first week, uh, Abdu Murray joined us, and he looked at the question, Dear God, why are you not more obvious? It's a question sometimes people ask. And Alicia Wood followed that up with the question, Dear God, Um, Why is there evil in suffering? Certainly questions that we grapple with. This week, I'm going to approach the question, Dear God, what makes you so special? And I can't help but hear a sarcastic tone in that. Maybe, maybe it means that, maybe it doesn't, but I'll tell you the first thing that comes to my mind, I can't get it out of my head, which is, does anybody remember the Saturday Night Live church lady? (laughs) Well, isn't that special? (laughs) And now you're never going to get it out of your heads. So you're welcome. And so maybe there is a sarcastic tone to the question for some people. God, why should, I, why should you matter to me? Or maybe there is a, a sense of a, um, a searching in the question. What, what does make you so important? Or maybe there's something even more personal than that. Maybe it's a reaffirmation question. It can take on many different aspects, but that's the simple question. Dear God, what makes you so special? Well, in order to answer this question, I really think we need to know what we mean by special because that word can have a lot of different senses to it and it certainly could almost take on an an arrogant tone, somebody who thinks they're special. So we really have to explore the word and kind of in in what it means in all these dimensions. And so when we talk about the word special, that's an adjective. It's describing a person or thing, giving it a characteristic. But there's at least four different ways you can take that word. One way is unique. Special meaning like unique or different from what is usual. Now, some of you probably don't know this story. I had a very unique encounter with my wife when we first met. Uh, I had somebody had introduced me to her. They said, this is Mickey, and they said, this is Kate. Her name is Kate, but I heard Kay. And so I said, well, it's nice to meet you, Kay. And her first word to me was, And now you know she does have a sarcastic side beneath that quiet demeanor. It was a very unique meeting. We hit it off. And after that, it actually led to the second sense of special. Because another sense of special is the definition having no equal. No one else rises to the same level. And certainly she became that and still is that to me. And so you have this idea of unique, being different from what is usual, usual, or having no equal. No one else quite rises to the same level. And also precious. Special in the sense of precious means something was designed 
for a particular purpose or occasion, designed. It was specially prepared. And then, of course, there's wanted, special in the sense of wanted, belonging to specifically to a particular person. They're wanted, they're special. And so what do we mean? When we say, God, what makes you so special, what do we mean? Well, perhaps all of these apply in some way. Let's take a look at them together. So when I think of that first one, special meaning unique, God, as it applies to God, meaning is he different from what is usual? Well, this might be a fairly obvious one, but if it isn't, let's just cover it briefly. I want to move on to things that are more personal in this, in this issue. But I've got to start with, by, by first acknowledging if there is no God, then nothing is special. If there's no God, then nothing is special. Physicist and self-proclaimed uh, atheist Lawrence Cross says it this way. He said it in the New York Times. He said, we're just a bit of pollution. If you got rid of us and all the stars and all the galaxies and all the planets and all the aliens, he assumes they're out there, and everybody, then the universe would be largely the same. We are completely irrelevant. And you know what? That's intellectually honest. He's being honest about it. If God isn't there, then there's nothing special. We're not special. And so where do you go from there? I don't know, but let's flip it around because if God does exist, then first of all, he's special by virtue of his very existence. Let me tell you what I mean by that. A couple of weeks ago, Abdu Murray touched on this slightly. It was the idea of where did God come from or what you might call the who created God fallacy. It's framed this way. If God created everything, then who created God? And this has been put out there many times to challenge the idea of God's existence. In a 1927 essay entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian, atheist Bertrand Russell said it this way. He said, if we ask who made me, then we should also ask who made God. And then he concludes, if everything must have a cause, then God must have a cause. And you see, this becomes a problem because how do we stop that? If God, who created God and then who created that? And, and it seems like it's illogical or nonsensical. Ironically, nobody ever asked that about the universe. Many of these same people say the universe always existed. Well, who created it? Nobody. It just was there. Somehow we don't allow that for God. Okay, but put that point for aside a moment. What we need to understand is when you look at space and time, it's impossible actually for this world, this reality that we know of, to have existed forever. And one of the reasons we know that is actually called Kalam's cosmological argument, okay? And let me just net it out. Basically what he says is this. If you have an infinite number of happenings in space and time before now, then you'll never arrive at now. We would never arrive here because you would have to have an infinite unending things that, that happened before we get to now, so you'd never arrive there. That's a convoluted way to think, but at the end of the day, it is logical, and what it tells us is this. There had to be a first now. There had to be a first moment in space and time in the reality that we know where there are causes and effects. There had to be a first moment or else we'd never get here. And so the universe, space and time as we know it, began. It's what you might call contingent, meaning it has a source outside of itself. Couldn't have started itself, didn't always exist. But if that's true, now here's where I'm going with this. If that's true, then not only must there be a source that sets that time and space in motion, but that source must be of a quality that is wholly different from this reality. It's not contingent in the same way this reality is. It's of a completely different essence or nature. 
It's what you might call the uncaused cause or the unmoved mover, some people call it. And so in other words, it can't be physical in time and space. It's not made up of that stuff. Maybe it's spiritual. It's not temporal, meaning it came into existence at some point. It might leave existence at some point. No, it's not temporal. Maybe it's eternal. Well, that's God. There are many more arguments we could put in to understand who God is and what God is, but this already points us to the understanding that we have a spiritual, eternal cause for everything in time and space. And so in that sense, if that is God that we're talking about, then God is special in the sense that he is unique. He has no equal by his very existence. Nothing else in the universe, in space and time, can equal that or is anything like that. And so, of course, God is special. And it's not just God, though, when we factor him into this because as we're told in Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, this God, this special God, created the heavens and the earth. And so guess what? If God exists and he created the heavens and the earth, then no, it's not like Lawrence Krauss says. We're not just a bit of pollution. We're not just a purposeless sense of, of molecules and bags of, of atoms in motion. We're not. We're more than that. There's a special purpose in God and in his creation. And so that kind of answers that question, but maybe perhaps that's not really the main question people are asking. So I wanted to deal with that, but I think there's a more personal dimension to this question. If people were to ask, if someone was to ask, dear God, what makes you so special? I think they're getting personal, like how do I know you and whether you matter or should matter to me? Why should you make a difference in my life? And so I think really when we get down to the personal side of it, what we're really asking, at least from the sense of being a Christian, is, hey, Jesus, what makes you so special? Or a seeker, somebody who's considering that question, and maybe that's you today. What makes Jesus so special? Why is he any different or better than the rest? Why, why, would, why should I believe that? Why should I put my faith in that? I asked that question. I was a seeker and a skeptic. I walked through the world religions and philosophies and atheism and considered these questions. They, were, they, were, they, they, were, they matter. They're meaningful and they're personal. Because am I just a bit of pollution and anything that happens in my life, good or bad, just doesn't matter in the end? Or is there something more? Maybe you've had those same thoughts. And if that's the case, then we have to deal with this. When we look at Jesus and there are many other figures and religious figures and other people that would claim to have the answers from Lawrence Cross to others we'll look at, the real question becomes, hey, Jesus, is there anything that makes you special? Well, let's start with that. Because the first element of special, again, is unique, meaning different from what is usual. Well, we're told that Jesus is somebody a little different. You know? When I was younger, I was kind of the class clown at times. People said, that guy's a little different. That was just kind of the understanding of who I was. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something very, very different. In John chapter 1, we're told this. No one has ever seen God. That means God the Father, the spiritual, eternal being. You can't see him because he's not in time and space. It's impossible to exist in the same way that he does so that you could see him in that fullest sense. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, that's Jesus, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father. See, there's the relational side, the personal side. 
He has made him known. So that means that everything we need to know about God, everything that we need to understand about his character, his love, his, his purpose, his design, all of that, what he designs, all of that, everything can be seen in its fullest sense that we need to see it in, in Jesus. Because he's God himself and he has made him personally known. That word, the word that is in the original for that one and only son that he is called, the word is monogenes in the original language. Mono, you ever think about mono, you know, there's stereo sound, there's mono sound, what does that mean? Mono, one, one channel, mono, okay? One, and genes is actually a word that we derive the word genetics from. So when you have genetics, you actually descend from somebody or you're connected to somebody in a unique sense if you have their genetics, right? Jesus is literally the only one that has the genetics, spiritually speaking, of the Father. That's what this word means. And as that, he is not appear to mere religious teachers. He's not. Before anything he even does on this earth when he walked it, before anything he said when he spoke here, before any of that, in his very nature, he is unique beyond mere religious teachers. C.S. Lewis said it this way, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that's Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. He also said you can spit at him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. But there are others who have claimed to have a similar divine status or divine approval. You think of Krishna and Muhammad and many others that are out there. Perhaps they're his equal in what they offered. Is, is that true? Does Jesus have an equal? And that's really the second sense of special. And I want to present to you what I found in my journey. So when we think about special in the sense of having no equal, no one else rises to the same level, we have to ask the question, does anyone, is Jesus on the same level as everyone else? Or does, does he rise up to a level that no one else rises to? Well, who is equal in the expectation of their coming, that they would come here to this earth? That's one question we could ask. When it comes to Jesus, we have prophecies in Scripture before he walked this earth that tell us about someone who would come. There's dozens and dozens of these, hundreds of these. But let's just net out the, some of the most salient ones. We're told, Scripture told us centuries before he walked this planet that someone would come who would be the line of a man named David, a king in Israel. We're told that he would be born in Bethlehem, so we're narrowing down his human genetic line and his human location where he would be, his geographical location where he'd be born. So born of the line of David, born in Bethlehem. We're told that Jerusalem, a very important city where the temple of God dwelt, where God could be worshipped, Jerusalem would be destroyed and then it would be rebuilt a specific length of time before this person would come. We're told that, the amount of time that would pass. We're then told that this person would enter Jerusalem after that time period and he would enter it on a donkey. We're told that he would be killed specifically by his body being pierced, his hands, his feet. 
We're told that after that happened to him, that he would die, but he would live beyond death. And then we're told that after that happened, this temple in Jerusalem, the same city that was rebuilt, would be destroyed again shortly after his death, proving that he, not the temple building, but he was the unique way to access to God. All of that worked in to, together and in order and had a unique specificity about it that if you add it all up, as one person had said, there, there was a, a one in 10 to the 17th power chance that all of this would be fulfilled. Now, that sounds like a big number. We don't know what that means. A one with 17 zeros after it. How big is that number? One chance in that. We'll take it this way, and this is what the person said. Suppose that we took that many silver dollars and laid them all across the face of Texas. They would cover the whole state two feet deep. Now, mark one of those silver dollars red and stir the whole mass of them up thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him he can travel as far as he wants, but he must pick up only one silver dollar. What is the odds that he would pick up the one red one? That is the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies alone and having them all come true in any one man. Think about that. Jesus was foretold to come to humanity in a way that no one else ever has. There is no system or religious views that have prophecies like this concerning the coming of an important, special person. So no one's equal in that way. Who, who, is, who is equal in their compassion? I have some pictures here because I want to show you, I want you to have an understanding of who these people are we're talking about. There was a man named Siddhartha Gautama. He lived 2,500 years ago. He's now known as the Buddha. That's a, kind of an image that's often associated with him. He lived in what would be modern-day Nepal, and he was, as the story tells us, he um, was, saw suffering behind, beyond his palace walls, and he came up with this idea that everyone suffers because all are attached to things in life. So attachment to things in life produces suffering, and so he became known as Buddha, the enlightened one. But now think about this. He is known to represent compassion. His followers have been known to be compassionate. Many of them probably are. I'm not personally making judgments on any of them. But we have to look at the person and what they espoused. And though they've been known as being, uh, he's been known as, as providing this compassion, there's a major issue at the heart of this. Because see, if you're going to understand if something is true, there's an element of truth that truth is coherent too. For example, if I told everybody in here that your purpose today is to run, go find the nearest burning building, run inside and wait, that's not a very good philosophy, and it's not very coherent to living. And so you have a right to question that and go, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. I don't think that has a lot of spiritual truth in it, because that doesn't seem to be the purpose of humanity, is just to end ourselves, right? And so what you have when we look at Buddha, this was lived out, this kind of an incoherency was lived out, and is lived out among the closest followers of him. There is a Buddhist monk I saw years ago who was in an interview and they were being asked, what does Buddhism believe and what do they teach and what do you, how do you follow it and so on and so forth. And the interview was going fairly well until a person looked at him and said, tell me about your children. And at that point, they began to weep, this Buddhist monk. And they said, I'll be honest with you, I haven't seen my children in years. And the reason is because attachment produces suffering. And suffering keeps us bound to this earth and we can never attain enlightenment. And so I had to detach from my children so I cannot see them anymore. 
And as their tears were rolling down, they were trying to pull together their their worldview with their lived experience, and it was totally incoherent and devastating. And this goes right back to the heart of Buddhism. Because Buddha, on the night that his wife gave birth to their only son, he left them both. This is a well-known story. Because attachment produces suffering. And suffering, you can't lead to enlightenment. And so you have to detach from personal things. What did Jesus say on this issue? Luke chapter 7 We see soon afterwards Jesus went with his disciples to a village named Nain and a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. There was a young man who had died, a widow's only son. See, she lost someone. She was hurting because she couldn't see her son anymore. And a large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion and he left and told her to leave, right? Because detachment is what leads you to enlightenment. No. We're told that his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. And he stayed there and he dealt with this that we'll see in a little bit. But he affirmed the attachment of personal relationship and value and meaning. The word compassion there, literally, if we get into the original word, it means that he felt it in his gut. Jesus felt the pain and the suffering of people in their gut. He felt the detachment of losing one another in his gut. And he moved to, to attach to the situation and do something about it. I personally find that there is no one that equals him in compassion. Who is equal in the power of their words? There was a man named Kyung Sho who lived many years ago. He became known by the name Confucius. This is a common picture depicting him. He's a simple teacher with unequaled words of wisdom he's considered having, forming an ethical school of thought. As many of them, you've heard people at the times, I'm sure, say, Confucius say, and they'll quote something by Confucius. He had a lot of them, and some of them are wise. I mean, all truth is God's truth, so we can recognize that. Interesting, though, little side note on that, is that he is credited with coining what's known as the silver rule. The silver rule is this. Don't do to others what you don't want want done to yourself. It's kind of the negative side of the thing. So that's become known as the silver rule, whereas Jesus coined what's called the golden rule. He actually gets the, gets the higher credit. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is a stronger statement of how to love another and treat another. But again, that's beside the point. They all have their own statements and their own words of wisdom. But here is the real question. When did Confucius ever use his words like this? Mark chapter 4. Jesus is there. They're in a boat. His disciples are afraid they're going to drown because a fierce storm has whipped up. And when Jesus woke up, he rebuked the winds and said to the waves, Silence, be still. And the wind stopped, and there was a great calm. Whoever has had the power of their words like this, there is no equal. Who is equal in their innocence before God? Another leader and great figure through history came out 1,400 years ago. His name was Muhammad. Here's a common depiction of him. His face, you might see, is a little bit blurred there. That's on purpose. Um, That is not a disrespect. That's actually an attempt at respect because Muslims do not like any physical picture or image of Muhammad displayed. Okay, and so they don't like his face seen, and so we blurred out those features there. But at least you get a sense of the culture, cultural look and feel that he would have had. And so Muhammad, 1,400 years ago, was born in Mecca what would be modern-day Saudi Arabia. 
As the story goes, he went to a cave often to pray and seek who God was in a time when there was many different views of gods and polytheism and just a world of confusion around him. And allegedly, as the story goes, an angel appeared to him. It was supposed to be the angel Gabriel. Came to him and said, recite, recite in the name of your Lord. He was calling him to begin to speak something, as the story goes. The word recite in Arabic is literally the word Quran, recite or speak. And so he began to speak these messages that were written down, and eventually they were collected and became known as the Muslim holy book, the Quran. And so he shared what he considered many, many truths about who God was. But was Muhammad sinless? In fact, I read the Quran through the years of searching, along with many other religious books and other books, and we see right in the book here that he is penning something, he, he, it was written down, something that he received from God, speaking directly to him, Muhammad, and this is what God says to Muhammad. Know that there is no God but God, Muhammad. Implore him to forgive your sins and to forgive the believers, men and women. So clearly had, Muhammad had sins that he needed to be forgiven of. But Jesus stood in front of his closest accusers, those who didn't want to accept who he was and his mission that he came to give, and he said this statement to them. He asked them a question. Which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? And there was silence because no one could accuse him of any sin because he had no sin. One of his closest followers, Peter, who walked with him and saw all that he did, said this to us and told us he never sinned. He never, ever, ever deceived anyone. He was without sin. And no one else can claim that. That's not just exclusive to Muhammad. There is no other human being or religious teacher that can claim to be sinless but one. Who is equal in the cleansing of men's souls? The Hindu religion has many different manifestations or understandings of God, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, Ganesha, but probably the one that has some, the most devotees, arguably, would be Krishna. He would look like that is how, often how he's depicted. You notice that uh, he's seen a lot of times in their, in their book, the Bhagavad Gita. is a very big book that reveals him. You'll see there that he has kind of bluish skin. He is not related to the Smurfs. Just making sure we're clear on this. That's not the reason. Okay? The, his name, Krishna, actually means dark or tinged with blue, dark blue. And the blue is said to represent kind of an inner divine power, peace and serenity. You hear that? Power, peace and serenity. So he is the divine representation of peace and serenity. But here's the problem. Because Krishna promoted, as followers of Hinduism do, that in order to find enlightenment and in order to find our way to some spiritual destiny, we have to first work off all the bad karma in our lives. Now, when you think of karma, many times people think of it as, you know, you do good and good will come, do bad and bad will come. That's not really the view of karma. That's actually more what Jesus said. What you measure out to others will be measured back to you. That's a view of accountability. 
and a view of consequences and consequentiality and so forth. That is not really the view of karma. The idea of karma is that a soul, when it's here on this earth, accumulates bad energy, bad karma, and that karma must be worked off in a subsequent life, and so that soul has to be born again into a new life and into a new body so it can try to work that karma off until one day it can hope to finally shed all that away and attain some kind of enlightenment, some, some detachment, as Buddha would have seen it, detachment from suffering, finally. But here's the problem with that. Does that bring peace? Does that bring serenity? It brings questions to my mind like this. What karma did I have in my first life that I needed to work it off? I mean, I was, I was born the first time. I wouldn't have had any bad karma. So wh why was I born the first time? To work off stuff I didn't have? So we have problems like that, but we have deeper, more personal problems like this. If, if my first life if I accumulated enough bad karma in my first life that it warranted me having to have a second life and be stuck in this cycle, then why should I expect any subsequent lives to get any better? Right. I'm going to keep building up more and more and more just like I did my first life, and I'm never going to get out from under this. I'm going to be under the weight of my negativity, the weight of my karma, the weight of all this that I will never escape. It's sort of like I'm a, a racehorse. I come right out and I, never, I fall dead right out of the gate. I'm never going to make it to the end of that track. And this is what a true understander, a true follower of this viewpoint, of Krishna's viewpoint, will have to grapple with. And they never truly can have an understanding that they are cleansed, that they are free, that they are at peace with the negative sin and junk in their soul and Jesus says this in contrast. In Mark chapter 2, we see that he saw, when Jesus saw the faith of the people, he said to a man who was bound in physical illness, Son, your sins are forgiven. Simple, powerful words that by his own authority, he released a man and he was at peace and he was free. Your sins are forgiven. You're at peace with God. You're in unity with God now. I promise you that by the power of my authority. This is what he gave that man in that moment. Ironically, he takes this man who's lying down there and he tells him, stand up and walk. So he released him in an even greater sense. And who else has ever done that? But Jesus carries the divine authority to cleanse our souls. And it has no equal. Who is equal in their command over death? There's an ancient religion called Zoroastrianism. A man who led that was named Zoroaster, or some people call him Zarathustra. And it had similar beliefs, probably because it existed in a time in Persia when, when the, uh, the, the, Israeli, you know, uh, the Israelite faith was around and probably borrowed some ideas there, possibly. We don't know. But it, it believed in one God. It believed in a Satan-like figure. It talked about there's good and evil. But at the end of the day... It said in order to get there, in order to attain heaven, you've got to follow the threefold path of good thoughts, good words, good deeds. You see, how much, can you, how much is enough? Krishna had the same problem, right? How much is enough to escape this cycle? How many good deeds can you do that's enough to, that you can be sure you got there or have any hope? But in the end, what's interesting is when someone would die, the true devotees of, of this religion would, would leave a body on top of a tower to decompose. Why? Because the body now was impure and no longer had a purpose. The soul, maybe the soul made it, but the body has no purpose anymore. But that's not what we see with Jesus. 
We see in Luke chapter 7 that he walked over to the coffin of that woman's son who was dead in Nain and touched it. And the bearers stopped and he said with those simple words, with his compassion that he engaged that woman and said, don't cry, and walked over and with his simple words of authority and power said, young man, I, I say to you, I, get up. I tell you, get up. And the dead boy sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother in personal attachment. Jesus restored this soul to this body the way it was designed to be. And that's what he promises us forever in glorified resurrection. John chapter 11, Jesus said to his friend Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says this to us. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never, ever die. And there are no others, no others that have a parallel to Jesus' historic resurrection from the dead. There's no even claims, let alone the evidence to show that it happened. That's only in Jesus. Jesus had no servants, but they called him master. He had no degree, but they called him teacher. He had no medicines, but they called him healer. He had no army, yet kings feared him. He won no military battles, yet he conquered the world. He committed no crime, yet they crucified him. He was buried in a tomb, yet he lives today. And only he lives today. And the last thing I would give you on this area of no equal is who is equal in the reaching of humanity. Now, you might think what I mean by that is who's had the most influence throughout history. Arguably, that could be Jesus. Some people say it might be him and Krishna and Muhammad in close parallels. But that's really not my point. It doesn't matter because that's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is who reaches to humanity in the same way. And this is one, probably the biggest one of all because whether you're talking about Krishna or Siddhartha, the Buddha, or Guru Nanak of the Sikhs, or Rishabhanatha of the Jains, or Muhammad of the Muslims, or uh, Zoroaster Confucius, the Taoists, the Shintoists, the Baha'is, whether you're talking about Deepak Chopra, the New Agers, whether you're talking about L. Ron Hubbard or the Scientologists, or maybe Tom Cruise, <laughs> whoever you're talking about, every single one of them is in agreement on one thing. They all try to reach up, but it is only Jesus that reaches down to lift us up. He is the only one that did that. And that's what makes him so precious. Special meaning precious. Designed for a particular purpose. I want you to think on this. In The Hunger Games, it actually originally came out of a James Bond movie, The World Is Not Enough, but in The Hunger Games, President Snow recaptures the same idea. He says, never let them see you bleed. He means if you're going to establish your power, you're going to establish your authority, there's one surefire way you should never abandon, and that is make sure they never see you bleed. And I think we often are influenced by that same idea. There are AI things now, these artificial intelligence things that are generating images of people. They're trying to generate themselves with flawlessly sculpted physiques. We've seen this game where people post pictures of themselves in perfect poses. You know, for some reason, there's something in us that we all want to transcend who we are and become more than human, become better than the rest. You ever notice that? And that's true of the spiritual prophets and gurus, everyone that we talked about with the exception of one. Every single one of them talks about how you get better, how you improve, how you go up. But Jesus himself did the exact opposite. Alicia told us this last week, and she mentioned this poem, Jesus of the Scars. Great writing. And it said this, The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. 
But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds but thou alone. You see, Jesus was different. He was special in the sense that he didn't try to become more. He, by nature, was more, and yet he chose to become less. Philippians 2. Jesus had an equal status with God, but he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status. See, that's who he is. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity. He took on the status of a slave, a beggar, becoming human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. He became not special. He chose that. In humility, he, he thought of us more special than himself. And he did this for a specific purpose, to seek out lowly ones in the most astounding way, like a beggar. I heard that Jesus sought out beggars, but I didn't know if it was true. What business do kings have near paupers? What interest do lords show in the wretched few? So I sought a beggar to ask him, and the mirror's image replied, it was for you that he came seeking, and for you that he died. The rich chose to become poor, a king lying muddied in a ditch. The Lord, he was the beggar, so your poor soul could be rich. And the face in the mirror convinced me I needed no further proof. It drew me right into his story, this deeper, shining truth. He not only sought out beggars, the beggar sought out me. Now I long for my Lord, the beggar, my humble, precious king. First Peter tells us, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Was Jesus unique? Yes. Was Jesus without equal? Seems that way. Was Jesus precious? He came here for a specific purpose in a specific way that no one has ever duplicated. A way that was marked by humility and love and sacrifice. Was Jesus wanted? Hmm, I think that's a question for each of us. And perhaps I can flip the question around. What makes you so special? What makes you and me so special? Is it all that we can do to make ourselves more than human? All that we can prove to God? All that we can accomplish? Does that make us special? Or is it that we're special because the special one sees us that way? Because he loved us enough to do what he did. It's a humbling thing to think about. So consider Jesus. Consider what makes him so special. 
And as I did, I guess I thought of this question and I thought if I were to write that to God, dear God, what makes you so special? I think what he might say in response is Jesus does. Let me just say one final thing as we close this out. If you have ever felt common, if you have ever sat back and thought, there's just nothing special about me at all. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there now. Just remember something. The special one wanted you. Never let that go. There'll be those that come up front here for prayer if you're seeking that. Please feel free to join them. But in the meantime, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, God, that he is not only unique, without equal, and precious, but Lord, we thank you that he wanted us. We thank you for the extent that he went to to demonstrate that love, your love, that you loved us with an everlasting love. And Lord, I pray that you either for the first time today or as in a renewed way, open our hearts back up again to wanting more of you in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.